0: Welcome to Pouring Over Pages, a podcast of words and wine. I'm Alexa. And I'm Maritza. Let's pop bottles and read novels. <laughs> <laughs> what we do best. Yes, exactly. What we do best. Thank you guys all for catching us for episode three, the third one, coming in hot. <laughs> That's a milestone. It is. And and I've loved all the books we've read, all the wines we've poured, and this is just getting better with each episode.
1: Yeah, and... and- even more importantly, I think we've just loved having conversations with everybody, all the feedback that we've received, all the kind words about not only the podcast, but the books, the wine, everything that we've been, you know, been discussing for the past couple of weeks. So this is uh, really all for, all for you guys, and we're just so excited to have you on this journey along with us.
0: Yes, and thank you all so much for your feedback on my wine selection for this next book. We'll get into that just shortly but um, I'd love to touch upon the book that we chose, which, by the way, was hilarious.
1: Yeah, let's let's start with just a sort of brief introduction into the book. I I do know that some people, some of our now regular listeners, we can say Ooh, that um, <laughs> some of our loyal listeners uh, have read this book. Um, others are very excited to you know to do that. So as usual, we're not going to provide too many spoilers or any spoilers. We just want to get people to. You know, be interested in the book and and use it as a catalyst for conversation, as we are doing today. This is a book that is, as Alexa mentioned, absolutely hilarious. I loved every second of this book. This is The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley. So this is a, a pretty new book. It came out a couple months ago. It's only available on hardcover as of now, and of course, audiobook. And the reason that we chose this book, or one of the many reasons that we chose this book, is because. It's really a book in so many ways about grief. Mm-hmm. It's about loss. It's about isolation. It's about family and family dysfunction. But it's also, you know, a, a very funny book. And it's written from the perspective of this very eccentric gay main character named Patrick, a sort of semi washed up sitcom yeah. star <laughs> who has a lot to say <laughs> and personal trauma and and a really difficult situation within his family makes it so that he has to take care of his brother's two children, six and yeah. nine years old, Grant and Maisie. So this is really his first moment coming out of isolation, so to speak. He spent quite a bit of time after working on this very popular sitcom on his own, trying to regroup, trying to understand what he really wanted to do with his life. And and, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about these sort of issues of isolation and how they're tackled in the book. But really what this book does is create, I think, an incredible sense of compassion for Mm -hmm. the character. That hard outer shell, um, we see through it, I think, from very, very early on in the book. And the reason that we also felt this was an important book is because it details grief and and sadness and difficult things in a very funny way, and it goes to show that storytelling can be the way to relate to someone else's story, that storytelling Mm -hmm. can make us feel really like we're not alone, and that shouldn't sound like something unusual, we've sort of said that before, but I think this novel is really the perfect example of how an author can do that, you know, create compassion for someone who at moments is even like a little bit annoying. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. I pictured him the whole time as um, like a fit Nathan Lane like from yes, Birdcage with, that, yes. with the sass and the wit. So you guys will get into that, but he, he tells a good story. You're
1: not the first person to compare this book a little bit to The Birdcage. Mm-hmm. It definitely has that vibe. It's just so funny. It's so witty. It's so well written and it sort of reminded me of me a little bit only because I don't really know how to talk to children. I, I talk to them like they're adults, and when they don't understand me, I'm just like, oh, what is wrong with this kid? It's like, it's a kid. <laughs> so I enjoyed it for that reason. But before we dive into some of these heavier topics, and we have some quotes that we want to, to discuss and things that we want to go over um i did want alexa to touch on we're doing something a little bit different today with the wine right we're we're not gonna dive fully into the the wine yet but we did want to touch on the fact that you guys helped us decide what to do for this episode
0: exactly so as some of you may have seen on our uh pouring over pages podcast instagram page go follow it um we did a poll quickly asking if you wanted to see a wine pairing or a wine cocktail pairing. Um, since this book does, you know, lean a lot towards cocktails, I figured it would be fun. And you spoke, we listened, and I am doing an Aperol spritz, my favorite kind of spritz, with um, Casa de Farive Valdobian Dene Prosecco, I yes. Sparkling, bubbly. So we'll dive into that later, but it's definitely one of the first drinks that they mention of many drinks in this book. Of
1: many drinks, okay. and and just as always, because we are creatures of habit, we are drinking that right now. Yes, it is currently one forty-three p.m. on a Monday. As we
0: record, <laughs>
1: Labor Day Monday. Labor Day Monday. <laughs> We're not working, uh, but we are drinking these delicious aperol spritz that Alexa made. So you'll hear us. Cheersing and you'll probably hear the ice sort of wobbling in our glass. We're trying to keep it authentic here.
0: Very authentic. We we don't hide anything from you guys. Nope,
1: nothing at all. We're an open book. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> Alright, so the gunkle. Now, as as I mentioned <clears throat> at the very beginning, we're introduced to a character that is very much in self-isolation. This is a character who's living in Palm Springs, lived a very Luxurious still lives a very luxurious, albeit you know, um, isolated life. Very well known for his his character in a sitcom, and once that sitcom came to an end, he felt the need to retreat. And we do find moments in the book that talk to us a little bit about why that happened, and we dive into his personal past a bit more. But at the very beginning, on on page ten, we're just you know he's described to us as he was simply done. For nine years he had given a side of himself to the world and what he had left he owed no one so he felt drained yeah
0: right f- we could all feel that at times <laughs> yeah we
1: can and i think that that's what made the book relatable from the very beginning mm-hmm. is just being being introduced to a character that was undergoing something that i think everybody can relate to this this idea of needing to recharge on your own because the world has already taken so much from you you know sometimes people who are overly compassionate or overly empathetic can experience that, that sort of energy suck. Uh, it's not necessarily in the fault of the people who do the energy sucking. <laughs> uh, it's just sometimes the way that people engage with others, and it can be incredibly difficult. So I found him to be incredibly relatable for that reason from the very beginning. And as I mentioned, because of a personal tragedy, which we learn about very early, so this isn't necessarily a spoiler. Um, but he has to take in these these two kids, right? Grant and Maisie. They're six and nine years old. And it's because his brother's wife passes away yeah. from cancer. And you'd think, okay, well, why can't his brother take care of the kids? Well, the, the brother developed an addiction while he was treating his wife, while he was taking yeah. care of his wife. So what I appreciated about that storyline is that it goes to show that there are other people who become um what's the word uh who also bear a sickness an illness when you have someone else in your family who is undergoing something so incredibly difficult so
0: it's not just the person that's dealing with it but also the people around them having to cope and that might also turn into what sickness like addiction
1: exactly and and greg that's the name of of Patrick's brother, so Patrick, the main character, Greg, the brother. Greg really um, dives into that a little bit and explains that this became something secretive because he had to keep this facade. You know, he had his wife sick and he needed her to feel like everything was going to be okay when she was gone, right? Mm -hmm. So this addiction was, of course, a secret. And he felt the need, of course, after she passed, to try and do something about it for the children, right? Because he didn't want his children to lose both their mother, and of course, then their father. So he asks Patrick, can you take these kids for three months? Patrick, of course, is like absolutely <laughs> fucking not. He's like, I know
0: nothing of children. I know nothing why? of
1: children. I love my life in Palm Springs. My fab life out there. <laughs> He's just like drinking cocktails. Chilling by the pool. Chilling by the pool. Hanging out, you know, not stressing out about a damn thing. But then something in the story, and this is another sort of family dynamic, uh, causes him to want to take the kids and that's his issue or his poor relationship with his sister Clara. So he ends up taking the kids and what I really love is that these kids are so well developed in the book.
0: Oh they really are. They
1: have such bright and funny personalities and (laughs) you don't you know sometimes in books when you have a lot a lot a lot of banter and a lot of quotations sometimes it gets a little bit confusing and you don't know who's doing the talking. In this case each character was so unique that I did not need to double-check and verify verify who was (laughs) speaking because you knew that when a very silly, childish question was asked, it was probably Grant. Yeah. Or when a really sassy kind of young girl question was asked, you know that it was Maisie. So they were just developed in such a way that you respect these kids. You get to know these kids. And for someone like me who doesn't, I don't have relationships with young children. I don't have any like young children around me in my life. I have cousins who have kids, but they don't live here. So for me, this was as close as I get really to to understanding (laughs) sassy young children. And I just, I loved that element. I love how he wrote.
0: Yeah, the dialogue was on point, especially, I mean, given my background in theater, it felt more to me like I was reading um, like a script than I yes. was actually a, a book at times with the dialogue. It was just like snappy back and forth and it, it just cracked me up. I literally laughed and, Sh- and Sean's like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's the book. It's hilarious. Leave me alone. Let me read.
1: <laughs> it was. It was such a laugh out loud book. And what I love is, you know, there are many things to love and I'll keep saying that. But one of the things that I think was really, really special about this book is that it touches on, on very important issues even though the book is funny you know witty etc and one of the very first things one of the first themes apart from grief and apart from loss that we encounter is this idea of girl things and boy things yes right so Maisie is, there's a scene where Maisie is uninterested in going into the pool because she doesn't have a bathing suit that she likes. It's like a traditional girly one-piece bathing suit. And so Patrick takes her to go buy a new bathing suit and she likes, you know, sort of long sleeve shirts and shorts. She doesn't like those girly, um, so to speak, bathing suits. And so they go and they buy her a new bathing suit. And one of the things that he says to her, one of his gunkle rules, which is a theme throughout the book, all these little There's rules, so many of them, yeah. So many. I and love they're all them. so good and so true. But one of them is that boys can do girl things and girls can do boy things. And that that shouldn't even be a gunkle rule because there shouldn't even be boy things and girl things to begin with. That people should just do what they want. Amen. <laughs> Preach, Patrick. Right? It's so, so simple. And that brings us back. I mean, something that I have enjoyed very much about reading all these different books and fil- you know filming all these episodes is that it also brings us back to other episodes and other mm-hmm. books that we've read. And that right there reminded me very much of Untamed.
0: Yeah. Like exactly. Glennon Doyle,
1: this idea that we don't have to pigeonhole ourselves into these categories. Instead, we can just be who we are and use those categories as, as, as nothing. Yeah, as, as, throw, as a, throw
0: the categories out and just yeah. be yourself. Don't if you even... want to use them
1: as a point of reference, sure. But in reality, they don't matter. So I really appreciated that he touched on that. And, of course, him being a, a, a very flamboyant gay main <laughs> character, it allowed for us to to sort of... To, to feel like these conversations were natural, yeah. right? It wasn't forced. A lot of these things that he talks about didn't feel like the author trying to put some progressive message into no. the book. It felt very much like the main character was the right conduit mm-hmm. for these conversations. And I very much appreciated that. Because to me, there's nothing worse than that out of touch trying to force a progressive message into a movie or into a book. And, and it feels and so And it just fake. feels stale. Yes. And lame and
0: pathetic. Genuine, yeah, you're just, I see what you're trying to do there. You're trying to trick me into this message, but it doesn't fit at all with this context.
1: Exactly. And apart from, you know, some of the deeper things that he talks about in the book he also touches on social media. Mm-hmm. He touches a lot on I mean the kids are very
0: interested in YouTube. They love it. <laughs> I mean, all, all the kids now seem to be like watching other kids doing YouTube things. It's so bizarre. I didn't know
1: that that was a thing that like kids watch other kids
0: play Yes, with open toys toys on YouTube and and this. it's very it's interesting. It's so
1: bizarre. Yeah. I mean I wouldn't know. I don't have children, no. so that kind of freaks me out, but but yeah, apparently this is a big thing this vlogging thing. So the kids are really into the YouTube and uh, Gup, Gay Uncle Patrick is what they but, call but they him. they call him, and he's like,
0: I'm not Gup. Yeah, he's
1: like, why do you guys call me Gup? And they're like, Gay Uncle Patrick, well, obviously. <laughs> Gup is not down with YouTube, right? Gup is not interested whatsoever in YouTube, and he talks a lot about what social media culture has become. I found this very interesting, and I, I hope I don't come off like an asshole when I say this, but he really makes a point when he talks about how we're living in an age where people are both performer and audience. Yes. That people will just lie back in bed, watch themselves over and over again and count their likes and comments and shares and followers and that it's just big it's just big one big like waste of time. Yeah. It right? pretty much is. It's a little ironic. I'm not going to pretend like me and you sitting in your living room <laughs> filming a podcast is not part of the Performative. irony. Performative. <laughs> I'm not going to ignore that. But there is there is something to be said about content. Yeah. And this is where I will, I will brag a little bit and I will toot our horn a little bit. I think that what we're doing is trying to create conversation that... Um, promotes more compassion, empathy, understanding. that gets people to read books. that gets people to connect. And I think that that is what's important. You and I have shared that for such a long time that we wanted to share that with other people through the things that we love the most. But there is so much garbage content out there that there is really is. about you just watching yourself
0: on social media. Putting shampoo in your hair and, and just... Showing your fabulous life. That's and, all and pointing at words. Words and things. The
1: pointing at words one really annoys me. Oh, it's all the trends. It's all the trends. It's all these trendy things. <laughs> uh, the dances. I mean, no. I'm not trying to hate on it. Like, I, no, I'm, I'm no. not trying to sound like a dick. It's I, a new
0: wave I, of, I of just media. I mean, instead of watching sitcoms on TV, like Patrick was saying, or the silver screen in cinema, he was dropping all these references that the kids had no clue about. They are glued to their devices, watching, you know, these video blogs from kids eating to playing with toys to TikTok dancing, like everything that's just so bizarre right now. But I mean, it is the way of the world, which is hard right. to place yourself in it, but also be aware of it.
1: And you have to contextualize that kind of relationship that you have with social media, meaning that the time that we're living in has also produced that mm-hmm. kind of entertainment. And I say entertainment in, in air quotes. Um, We're living in a time where entertainment has become a sort of escape from what we're experiencing. And I'm just talking about the past now almost two years. Um, We feel the need to express ourselves in order to connect with others because for so long we were forced to not connect with them physically. And I understand that, really, (laughs) like truly, (laughs) I, I I can't emphasize that enough. But the way that, that Patrick talks about it in this book is that he's really emphasizing that there were moments, as you mentioned, the silver screen, Hollywood sitcom, that within their context, you understand that they were a reflection of society at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, during the Great Depression, um, people were watching films in order to escape the fact that there were so many horrible things going on, that there were so many people who were hungry, right? Same thing happened during the Second World War. Um, this idea of the silver screen really was this dreamland and we are now the dreamland
0: is, 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 is us, it's, it's it's the real land. Like we were just sucked into it constantly and watching ourselves over. It's yeah, it's a strange thing.
1: It's like the camera was turned right on us and the escape has become us. And, and, and he mentions too, that people no longer want to watch a film and even like a 23 minute sitcom is too much people want to watch a one minute two minute thing on TikTok or instagram that that's the attention span that people have that breaks my heart And and i and i definitely want to talk about that a little bit because we've we've discussed what reading is right to me to you on a personal level i've always described it as me showing myself kindness right um but we're, if we're living in a time where we're allowing for people to become used to a time span, an attention span of 60 seconds, yeah. what are we really doing? You know, what are we really doing? Because I don't think that that can lead us to a better place. No. You can't get to know someone in 60 seconds. Sure, you can get an impression and you can get a <laughs> vibe, and sometimes that's enough. And I get that. I'm not going <laughs> to pretend like I haven't judged someone in 60 seconds. But the truth is that really valuable, honest connection, whether it be with someone else or with a book or with any form of art, requires more than 60 seconds. You know, we've, we, we hear that too with, with art, that the average amount of time that people spend in front of a painting is something like 30 or 40 yeah. seconds. That's not nearly enough time. As someone who works in the arts, I can tell you that that breaks my heart too. But I, I hate the idea of normalizing such a short attention span.
0: Yeah. No, and it's horrible. It feels almost like soundbite culture. Like we just want to hear the best little snippets from TV, from these dances, from these trends. Just summarize it real quick for me. Like they don't want the full thing. They don't want to dive in and really get into the complexities of, of anything at all. They just want like the short summary. Like here, done. You read it. You air quote read it. Watch right, it. The cliff notes The of cliff life. notes of life.
1: And what bothers me about that is that when you remove something from its context, you remove so much, not just the point, not just the way that you can fully understand something, but it can even lead to misinformation, Yes. right? And in a lot of ways, that's how the news functions now on social media. You know, a sound bite is enough for someone to be turned off by politics or by the things that are happening all around us in the world. And these sound bites are taken so literally and out of context that we put ourselves in a position where we can't properly communicate with one another.
0: There are so many times when someone's quoted the headline of an article without reading the article. And I'll know exactly which which article they're quoting. And I'm like, no, that was just the headline. When you get into it, it's not actually that, it's this. And that's the way the world functions now. People don't have the capacity for more than just a few seconds here and there.
1: And headlines are meant very much to reel you in. The intention is for you to then read the damn article.
0: The person who writes the article is not the same person who writes the headline. FYI. People don't know
1: that. People don't know that. And I find that crazy. But, you know, but again, like that's the world that we are living in. This quick information quick video on YouTube, quick soundbite, quick video that that is supposed to be all-encompassing, but it's not all-encompassing. And so what I ask is for people to slow down, for people to take things in context. It's one of the reasons why I really love The Atlantic. Mm -hmm. I think you know... My love yes. for the Atlantic. <laughs> I am a subscriber of many years and it's and it's a magazine that really takes into account the context. It's it's not just news, it's real stories. And so I just encourage people to see reading that way, to see research that way. It's okay to be entertained by these things. I go on Instagram, I enjoy watching these reels, mm-hmm. I enjoy watching videos of Chihuahuas, you know, <laughs> be mean to people. I just I get it. But this can't be the way that we digest all of our information. No. We need to get back to a point where context matters again.
0: Agreed. Period. Yeah, period. Period.
1: <laughs> period. That is my hot take for today. <laughs> and the book, the book touches on that throughout, yeah. right? Like there, there are multiple conversations about this. And one of the things that really irritates Patrick is the fact that you're putting out a facade when you when you do this right when you go on Instagram it's it's a highlight reel of all the good things that happen in your life we've discussed this already we talked about that on episode 1 but he he really he really dives into something that I think is so important and that I hadn't thought about until he wrote it in this way but on page 201 he I believe he's talking to his sister Clara they don't have the best relationship no. she has a hard time understanding him sees him as a selfish person um, and he says, "What do you think gay people do? Have done for generations? We adopt a safe version of ourselves for the public for protection, and then as adults, we excavate our true selves from the parts we've invented to protect us. It's the most important work of queer lives."
0: That breaks my heart.
1: That breaks my heart, and it's so synced. I mean, those are those are three sentences, yeah. and it's absolutely true. And I and I, I obviously can't speak. To this from the pers from, from a queer perspective but I can speak to it from the perspective of a woman mm-hmm. right where I have had to act tougher than I am or I have had to act stronger than I am because it's what I needed to to, to show the world in order to be respected at that moment for example and the way that he wrote that right like I, I really I, st- I stayed with that quote for a while um, because I don't think that there's anyone who won't relate to it, whether you're queer or not. This is something that I think so many of us do because of those categories, yeah. because of what it he tackles with that. Maisie.
0: Yeah, exactly the categories, and you know and that falls into line whether you're woman, queer. I think you know if you're a brown person, being white enough into the world, just all these different things that these boxes that we're forced to kind of fit into without wanting to.
1: And the boxes are they're different mm-hmm. based on where you go and that in and of itself is an argument for why they're bullshit yeah <laughs> right like when i'm here here and, and i mean miami people ask me where are you from what they're really asking me and you can i th- you'll think you'll agree with me what they're really asking is where are your parents from yes or what's what's your heritage yeah or however people want to phrase the question so people ask me miami where are you from i usually say oh i'm from nicaragua but if I'm not in Miami and someone asks me where I'm from, I say, oh, I'm American. I'm from Miami. And then there's always this like weird little glitch. Like, huh. They're like, oh, but. But like, but what... where, where? Right. Like, like... Oh, but wh... My favorite is, where are your parents from? And I'm just like, <laughs> uh, my parents are from Nicaragua. But what's funny is that like here in Miami, I'm, I'm just light enough for people to not believe that I'm Nicaraguan, and then. Elsewhere, people will perceive me as something else like I'm never Nicaraguan enough. I'm never American enough. I'm obviously not white So people don't look at me and think oh she's American until they hear my voice yeah. and my you know American apple pie accent comes out so you know based on where you live based on the the culture that surrounds you these boxes change these mm-hmm. categories change and so that is something that I wanted to emphasize, because as I said, it's it's just proof that these boxes are absolute bullshit, right? And we have to, I think, from a personal perspective, do everything that we can to eliminate these boxes. Sometimes what I have done and I realize that it's maybe not the kindest thing in the world, but a good friend of mine taught me this a long time ago. She's She definitely listens to our podcast, and I think she'll know that I'm talking about her. (laughs) She might not even realize how much of an impact this made on me, but she said to me once she said, Maritza, when someone asks you something like that that makes you a little bit uncomfortable because they're trying to place you in a box, Mm -hmm. just say, what do you mean? Ah, I love it. And then they're forced (laughs) to try and rephrase what they're implying, and it never works out for them. You know, because I had someone be like, "Oh, you're Nicaraguan. You don't look Nicaraguan."
0: You're like, "What does Nicaraguan look like?" And I was like, like?
1: "What do you mean?" And they're like, "Oh, you're well, just Nicaraguan people are normally like really dark." And I was like, "Well, Nicaraguan people can look like anybody. They can look (laughs) like me, you know, like." But it's just funny because you force people to say the thing that they were trying to hide by asking the question in this other way.
0: It's amazing.
1: And so it's just so simple. What do you mean?
0: What do you mean? I'm what do you use mean? That next Just time. use it. It's the best. It's the best.
1: You see people really crumble. And as I said, it's not the kindest thing that I do. But I think it's important. I think it's a self-reflective it's 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 an imposed self-reflective moment for them. And I hope it teaches them a lesson because these boxes need to be eliminated. Yeah, they're problematic. They're We're problematic. To throw them out. A hundred percent. And And I think that because of the fact that Patrick does attempt to do that quite a bit in the book, his sister perceives him as selfish, she calls him that a lot. And he says to her, you think I'm selfish, you think everything's about me, 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 me. (laughs) Always have. But you know what? Self-love for gay people can be an act of survival. You think it made me unserious while you toiled away in the nonprofit works or raised money for any number of causes. But when the whole world is designed to point out that you're different, it can be a way to endure. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was incredibly powerful as well. That there is this idea that, I mean, we struggle with it too, that self-love is selfish.
0: Yeah, it's selfish. You're being lazy. You should be doing something else, you know, for someone else. But I mean, you, you really need to recharge and, and just kind of recoup before you can go back into the world. And that's a way to do it.
1: You cannot pour from an empty cup, mm-hmm. right? That's what we've discussed over and over again. And, and he goes into what I think is a really tough topic, um, a topic that even as someone as, as outspoken and unafraid to express herself as, as me, even I feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about this because I know how explosive of a topic it can be. But he does say that between him and his sister that there was a minefield between them filled with explosive made from years of brainwashing and religion and intolerance and spite now
0: <laughs> lots to unpack there
1: <laughs> as i said it's a really difficult thing to to unpack because there are so many people who find comfort and morality and community in religion And I think that sometimes when you're in it, you have a hard time remembering that sometimes that exclusivity and that doctrine can lead to ignorance, hatred, and a lack of understanding for people who are not like you. So, wow, I'm really proud of myself for putting it that way. That's probably cr- the nicest really way I nice. ever
0: said it. I was waiting here, like you were okay, waiting for me gonna, to just say something awful. <sighs> what's gonna happen? <laughs> but <laughs> ah, no, that that, that that is perfectly sums it up in the in the clearest and nicest way. I tried. <laughs> I really tried. <laughs> no, and it's it's true. It's just you become. I mean, you become a hypocrite sometimes when you when you're in it and you're not realizing that. You know the, the things that you should be showing you know compassion empathy love for everyone you know unconditional love you are not and you are looking at the other you know down at the other and, and that's just not you know theoretically what those teachings are about
1: right just the simple fact of othering people yeah is contrary to what um the original teachings are yeah um I, I went to Catholic school um, for high school. I was not really raised religious. As as a matter of fact, my, my parents are very progressive um, atheists, and, and so I didn't grow up in a house where I felt you know, the, the need to um, bring religion into my everyday life. And so for me, Catholic high school was very, it was a very eye-opening experience because I didn't grow up with it. So it all felt very weird to yeah. me. I'm grateful, truly grateful that I went to Catholic school because it opened my eyes to so many things. It opened my eyes to really, um, the fact that I can pick and choose what I want to be, you know, what lessons I want in my life and what I want to reflect my values. So I'm glad that I learned because I don't think that you can criticize without, Without knowing first.
0: No, exactly. I, you know, my mom was Baptist, taught Sunday school every week, and I would go to church for choir. For Saturday night service and then for Sunday school because she was teaching, so I'd go three times a week until I was about until I could drive myself, and then I didn't go as much. And <laughs> you escaped. I escaped. Thank you, Honda Civic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there is something to say about being in it and, and seeing things firsthand and really learning before you are able to you know critique and and take from it what you wish. And I mean. I met a lot of people, I, I learned a lot of things, and I'm just glad that now I could take from it what I wish and live right. my life in the way that I choose to.
1: And again, going back to the, the, my sort of original hot take earlier, is this idea of context. Yeah. You have to understand that religion is cultural. Mm-hmm. It has everything to do with where you were born and who raised you and what community you are a part of. Because if you were born in the Himalayas, I can tell you right now that you would not be going to Sunday school. <laughs> no. Okay? And so that's something that I wish more people took the time to understand. That if you, if, you really, if you really dive into world history and understand how religions made it to every corner of the world, you'd understand that most of it has to do with power yeah. and with conquest and with politics.
0: I was about to mention the politics, too. Like, I feel like religion right now has turned into, you know, instead of a separation from church and state, they are very much bringing religion into the mix and making it even more muddy for people right. who, who normally would, you know, believe in X, Y, Z, but now no because I'm religious, I have to be this way because that's the party I, I work with. And it's just, it, it shouldn't be that way. Okay, Alexa, let's talk about Texas. Oh God! <laughs> there is no reason why Texas should do what they just did,
1: and that's exactly why they did what they did. And I will say this, and this will be—you know what? Never mind. This is my hot take. Okay, this is my hot, hot take. take. This is my real hot take. The topic of abortion is something that was galvanized by the religious right merely forty to fifty years ago because they could no longer campaign on issues of segregation. Ronald Reagan passed one of the most liberal abortion bills ever passed. That was something that most Americans could agree on, is that women have a right to choose. Mm -hmm. To this day, two thirds of Americans still believe that to be the case. The only reason that this issue has become political is because the religious right needed, they needed a moral stance on something that could galvanize a base, a religious base, to get them to keep voting. Yeah, look it up. I'm not making this shit up. And that's exactly what the problem is, is that if you don't take this issue in context, you don't realize that it hasn't always been this way. There is no mention of abortion in the Bible. No,
0: definitely not. Nowhere. There's mentions of of whores and lepers, but no no abortion.
1: And we love whores and lepers. We love them. We love them. (laughs) But there is no mention of abortion in the Bible. And let's remember that the Bible as it is today is a collection of books that was chosen by a group of men in the Council of Nicaea. So men actually, believe it or not, are among <laughs> the greatest beneficiaries of women having the right to choose. They are. So let's just, let's just remember that context matters. And that is it why does. this book, is so important because it touches on these issues in a light-hearted sweet funny deep way and yet you and i can dive into this yeah and it's all because of the themes and the questions that are asked in this book that's what's important yeah that's what really makes this book so incredibly special it really is and i also wanted to touch on the quote that we posted oh on, my on instagram yes we always Alexa always chooses a quote um well actually yeah let's talk about that process a little bit Uh, how we prepare for these podcasts because we both read the book and what I do is that I actually collect a, a list of quotes from the book that I think will make for good discussion topics which is why I reference quotes so often and then Alexa will choose one that she feels uh really sort of you know, is is all encompassing of of the book or one of the discussion topics that we think we will tackle and that we think is interesting or important. And I think that we've chosen quotes that have been empowering and interesting and that have really, um, you know, just aimed at exactly what we've talked about. But this one, I think, is really, really, really special. It's a good one. Because it really does, in this one short sentence, sort of sum up everything we've talked about. (laughs) And it's Normal is a terrible thing to aspire to. Yep. Amen. Fuck those boxes.
0: (laughs) Normal. Those categories.
1: Normal sucks. What even is normal? Normal is what has been dictated to you. And who dictated it? Again, context. Ask who is creating these categories and how are those categories benefiting other people? Mm -hmm. Why is keeping you in your place so important? Right? Ask yourself these questions. And so normal is a terrible thing to aspire to became, I think, just such a wonderful...
0: It's like a nice mantra yeah. to, to tell yourself and empowering, because it's true. Like, what is normal? Normal is so subjective. Right. And, you know, like you're saying, who is is telling you what is normal and why? So. And who
1: is benefiting and mm-hmm. who is profiting from that? I I have a very wise friend who who said to me... When I'm feeling insecure about something, like, oh, I'm not skinny enough or my hair is not thick enough, I ask myself, who is profiting from my (laughs) self-doubt? Tell me that's not, like, the smartest thing you've ever heard. That is so smart. It's absolutely true. And so this idea of normal, what the fuck is normal? Who is normal? I don't know anybody who's normal, quite frankly. Everyone that I know is an absolute mess, and I love that. Because as we've already talked about, no one knows what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> just be your genuine, true self. We're all just doing just our damn do- best. We, we yes. really, 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 really are. Coming through the mess. Yes. And, 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 and this book, I mean, the last thing I'll say, just to sort of conclude the overall conversation about the gunkle, is that there is a love interest in the book.
0: Yes. There's Emery. There is. He's very in and out of the book at times. Very mysterious.
1: And he's sort of like, yes, he's mysterious. And he's given importance, but only in the way that you would give importance to a possibility. Yeah. And I found that so refreshing. Because at the end of the book, you don't know if they're together. You don't know if... There's anything really going on. You know that he's around and mm-hmm. that he's around in a positive and supportive way right from the last scene in the book. But we don't really know what's happening. And, and Patrick at one point is, is sort of talking about how he thinks that Emery isn't right for him. But the, he also knows that he wasn't wrong for him right that Emery was this person who's full of life he's a yes and he's a no and that the whole point of of leaving Palm Springs right because eventually he does and coming out of isolation was to stop making excuses and to stop saying no so Emery to me is the sort of physical manifestation of possibility yeah in the book and I love that it wasn't like Your traditional love story, it wasn't a happily ever after like beach read or or happy Happy for for nows. Happy (laughs) for nows, excuse me. But it really is just this idea that if you remain hopeful and you remain open and you remain uh, willing to accept that possibility in and of itself is magical, that everything else can fall into place alongside it.
0: No, it's perfect. At first, I was a bit confused because I thought it was going to be, like,
1: me love interest
0: at the end and this and that. So I was like, they're not giving him enough airtime for me to understand this. <laughs> like, I don't know Emery well enough. Am I rooting for him? Am I not? not? What's yeah. the character on this guy? <laughs> I'm just getting these bits and snippets. But then at the end of it, I, I understood why he wrote it in that way. Mm-hmm. And I was glad for it. Because at first, I'm like, he's missing a whole chapter on this guy. I don't know anything. But... No, I'm, I'm glad he did in that way because it was a manifestation of possibilities and opportunities and, and it presented itself perfectly for Patrick and, and totally, you know, helped him doing all the other things that I'm not going to mention <laughs> later on in the book.
1: Right, yeah. Well, I guess we'll just call it
0: coming out of isolation. Yes. Right? Out of isolation in all senses of the word. And it just shows that he really was focused
1: on his recovery, focused on the children, focused on what his life could be after everything that had already happened. Mm -hmm. So Emery was a really interesting character to me because even though we didn't get to know him that well, in a weird way, because you don't, you are intrigued and you're hopeful and you're excited for Patrick and you're excited for what's to come. Because that's really how the book ends is is it's a myriad of possibilities. (laughs) And I really, I loved that. And so I think um, I'll, I'll end it with this. The very, one of the very last things that is said in the book is that there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want, and the other is getting it. And Patrick <laughs> had lived both, but the second was preferable. So always keeping in mind what can and can't be possible, but being grateful for whatever it is that does come and doesn't come. You know, that happy for now, that theme, I think it remains in yeah. the gunkle.
0: I'd have to agree. And, you know, I love how all of these books tie together thematically in different ways so we could look back and reflect on them.
1: Absolutely. And 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 we'll continue to do that. And so we, we encourage everyone if, if you're if you're reading these books or if you're at the very least you're listening to the podcast to to read them in order or think of them in order because we, we do wanna jump back and reference them because in so many ways they're in conversation even if it's just just through the connection that we're making, you know, with them. So Again, The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley, an incredible novel. Highly, highly, highly recommend. Please uh, send us your thoughts. Tell us what you thought of the book, and keep the conversation going because we we really love this. is just This is just a top novel for me. What well, definitely one of my awesome. favorite reads of twenty twenty one. No, I got sure. through
0: it in the plane ride. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. You read it in five minutes, dude. <laughs> I read it on an eight-hour plane ride, and I didn't even take the whole eight hours.
1: Look at you! You're turning into an avid reader. Look at you. Look at me. I it ate... wasn't very hard to turn no. me into a wine drinker, but <laughs> so I'm very proud. <laughs> well, speaking of
0: wine, let's get let's yes, get on it. Let's, let's get in. Dive it. into it. So I was reading through the book and trying to think of um, you know a wine to pair with this, but as I kept reading and Patrick kept drinking it became very clear (laughs) that he's a cocktail man and he's totally into his martinis maybe a a mimosa at brunch but that's about it and and we're not about to have mimosas here it's it's already like two o'clock as we're filming this so I figured I would kind of go a different direction and do a wine cocktail so I picked an Aperol spritz um, he actually drinks one with Jed earlier on in the beginning when he's talking about. Oh, I love Jed. Jed is hilarious. It's... I don't want
1: to. I don't want to spoil wanna ruin Jed it for you because Jed is worth you discovering on your own. Yeah, Jed is one of the highlights for me of the book.
0: The best. So good. So so good. funny. But Jed makes an aperol spritz and he's there drinking it and I'm like, yes, Palm Springs is hot. And sweaty and you're only you know the only place to go when it's daytime is by the pool and what a perfect pool drink and and that is why I brought it to us Um, so for some of you who may not know what an Aperol spritz is it's pretty much an Italian based uh, wine cocktail um, commonly served like as an aperitif um, before dinner drink and it's um, made with Aperol, which I, I didn't even know. Aperol is made with flowering pr- plants and rhubarb. Um, it's kind of a bitter taste, kind of a liqueur, if you if you will. Um, made with Aperol, Prosecco, um, a bit of soda water, and then you garnish it with an orange slice. Um, it's pretty much a um, very old cocktail. It, yeah. It was made... Um, In the 1800s the spritz was born in veneto the habsburg um you know ruled the region and the soldiers diplomats employees everyone of that empire started drinking the local wine in italy but the wine ended up being too strong for them italian wine (laughs) get out of here it was too much the alcohol content was way too much for them so um this is how the spritz was born they pretty much just watered down wine (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Me and you are like, that's
0: pathetic. I'm like, what losers? <laughs> they ruled and they're still... But yeah, they pretty much um, would get sparkling wine, so a Prosecco like we are now, rosé or, or white, and they would add water to it. Sounds awful. So that is how uh, it was born, and I th- thought it was perfect for that. And the best part is you can make this cocktail using any Prosecco. So based on your preference, you could grab it. Um, and I'd like to take the time to, to mention why things are called Prosecco. Some things are champagne, some things just for our, our audience here. Um, so Prosecco is actually um, a region in North Italy where they make uh, Prosecco, this drink made from the Glera grape. So when you get to Europe, a lot of the, the writing on the bottles are based on the region more so than the actual grape being used and that's very confusing most of the time especially you know in france and italy and all these places because in america we label things more so by the grape they're using because we're making a traditional aperol spritz which comes from italy we're using prosecco but you could pretty much make this wine cocktail with any sparkling wine um it just depends on which region you're feeling anything that's fizzy will work awesome with this cocktail here, I'm using Casa del Farrive Valdobiandene Prosecco because it comes from the Valdobiandene region. So, it has um, more richness to it, it um, has more concentration in it. It's, it's a better quality Prosecco than the basic one off the shelf. Um, so, you really can't go wrong with this one. It's a step up from your everyday Prosecco. So, I felt this was perfect for the book. Patrick, I think, certainly would approve. I think so.
1: And you can drink the prosecco on its own too. If you're if you're not really feeling making a wine cocktail, you can just drink the prosecco on its own. It's really, really good. We've tried it on its own. It's really fizzy and delicious, refreshing, which is what you would want to drink if you're in Palm Springs in the middle of the heat in the desert. And you're trying to, you know, cool down by the pool, I suppose. Definitely. (laughs) And prosecco is
0: very affordable. It's not gonna have the price tag of, you know, the champagne region in France where you're you're talking like $40, $50, $60 $40, 50 $60 dollars for an entry-level bottle. This bottle in particular was, um, I think, $15, $16. Dollars. Um, I've seen it at Costco even for less, closer to the $10 mark. So it's an affordable way to have some fizzy celebration in your life.
1: Yeah, and I, I appreciate that we chose an uh, Aperol Spritz because it brings me back to when I was living in Venice, and I used to get them for like two euros. It's at so the bar cheap. across <laughs> from where I worked, I worked at I worked at the Peggy Guggenheim Collection, and across there's this tiny bar. <clears throat> and for two euros, you could get an aperol spritz. So you can imagine how many we had.
0: Oh my god! Um, enough for a lifetime. But... Enough for a lifetime, <laughs> and
1: it's just so refreshing, and it's just so quintessential. You know, to when you're in Venice, everyone's always drinking one. That's what you see that that sort of orangey pink drink around. And um, absolutely, Patrick Wood, there's no
0: question, no would approve of our <laughs> pairing today. Yes. I I think it's right up his alley and I'm glad that I can make him proud. (laughs) I think so. I think
1: so. We want to thank you all so very much as always. We are already hard at work on our next episode. Uh, Alexa has already reread the book, I have to do that um, in the in the next couple days. Um, And just another reminder that to you know, to please subscribe, rate, and we actually have merch that has dropped. So if you're interested in a tote bag, a hat, um, please, please, please head over to our Pouring Over Pages um flow page where all of this is accessible to you with just one click. Yes. Um, it's a great way to support us and to support this project. So please keep the conversation going and we're always here to listen.
0: Definitely and, and we're here for you guys and um if you want to get the early access for our next book definitely subscribe to our newsletter. You could find it on the flow page like Maritza mentioned. And if you're following our stories, I, I had a little Easter egg in there for you on my trip. So uh, you may or may not figure it out. Very good clue. Very good clue. But again, thank you all for listening. We appreciate the support. And cheers to, to the next episode. Cheers.